We have been working through Paul's letter to the Colossian church, and uh, a few weeks ago we would have normally taught through, I got some kind of feedback, I don't know, are you getting that? Um, We were talking through, um, where am I now, I lost my place, how did I do that already? Oh, yes, we would have normally, we were not talking through, we would have normally taught through uh, chapters 1 to 15, or sorry, chapter 1, 15 to 23. That was way back when we first started. Now I'm on track. Um, But I could see at the time that chapter 1, verses uh, 15 to 23 would be far more appropriate today on Resurrection Sunday, with verse 18 of chapter 1 highlighting that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And so today, in your life groups, in this week, this is going to be your text. It's going to be Colossians 1, 15 uh, through to 23. And on Good Friday, if you were here on Good Friday or watched online, our message was on the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ in history and in Scripture and in the purposes of God, and the centrality of the cross in the purpose and person of Jesus. And in our text today... Paul is going to expound not necessarily exactly on the centrality of Jesus, but on the preeminence of Jesus. That is the excellence or the superiority or the prominence, the supremacy of him. And Jesus surpasses everything in every way because of who he is and what he's done. And so Paul sets up for us here really the perfect Easter Sunday message in verses 13 to 14 by summarizing what God has done through Jesus. He says, just to set up our text in Colossians 1.13, he, being God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so from that point, launching off of that reality that what Christ has accomplished to move us into the kingdom of light, Paul then just exalts in every way the Son, Jesus, that he is first and supreme in all things. And so we're going to read our text in, first, uh, in Colossians 1, and uh, then we'll work on unpacking and unfolding what Paul, the Apostle Paul wants us to see here. But let me just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we get to open up your scripture on this day, that we get to um, contemplate the preeminence and the supremacy of your Son, Uh, that you have placed his name above every other name, that you have made him higher than all other authorities. He has always been higher than all other authorities, that he is you incarnate, making you visible and accessible and revealing the mystery of your good news and your promise to us. All of these things, Lord, we get to unpack today. And so we just thank you that we get to meditate on these truths. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that they would land on us new and maybe for some of us land on us for the first time that we would see your son, the way that you would have us see him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So Colossians um, 1, 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now there's several kinds of neat ways that you can see the text is structured here. And verse 15 to 20 are so poetic and rhythmic, even in the English translation, that many linguists believe that here Paul actually lifted a hymn of the early church, a song that they would have sung, and he lifted that hymn and incorporated it into his text. And if he did do that, the hymn works perfectly with what he is saying in Colossians, what he's leading into in Colossians 1 and what he will speak on and talk about later in the later part of the letter in Colossians. And we could unpack this text by seeing it several different ways. We could see it as a movement through time. Uh, Verse 15 speaks to Jesus with God, a perfect image of God before time even exists. And then it talks about the distance past, about creation itself, Jesus being the instrument by which every created thing is created. And then it moves into the age of God's people in the church where we live now. And then it points towards the future judgment day where we will stand before God. And then even the hope of our glory, eternal life with God. And so this is a text that moves through time. Or it could be unpacked according to the doctrines or truths about Jesus and his purpose. It begins talking about his deity, the image of God. Talks about him as the instrument of creation, the firstborn of creation. Talks about the incarnation. God was pleased to dwell in him. Talks about his role in reconciliation, reconciling all things. It talks about salvation, the blood of the cross, justification, presenting us blameless, sanctification, if you continue in the faith, and glorification, the hope of the gospel, eternal life. So you could work through the text that way and go through all those doctrines, all in this hymn. Or we can consider it as we are going to today. Today I just want to consider it, consider this text in sort of three stanzas that represent a movement in scale or a movement in scope of the preeminence of Jesus. The hymn begins with creation and his preeminence in the whole universe, and then it moves down in scale and scope to the body of Christ, the church, and then from the church it moves down to the individual believer. And so Jesus is shown preeminent at all of these different scales, all of these different scopes. And so that's how we're going to look at it today. Firstly, in creation, verses 15 to 17, and actually, even before creation, the scale starts out God-sized. <laughs> it starts out at the scale of deity. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus makes it possible to see what is normally impossible to see. Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the revelation of the mystery of God. And that would be impossible for us to relate to. What, what was impossible for us to relate to is now made relatable. And what is vis- invisible is now visible in Jesus. But in order for something to be visible, it has to be created. It must be for us. And so Jesus is with God before the foundation of the world, the instrument, so to speak, the means by which all created things were created. He is the firstborn of creation. 
Not meaning that he was the first created thing, but meaning like an eldest son, he is the inheritor of all things, and all things are for him, all things are intended for him, and all things are subject to him. Creation is his inheritance. All creation will be made a footstool for his throne. Ephesians 1.4 says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. John 1 says the word Jesus was with God and was God. Hebrews 1.2 says that Jesus is the heir of all things and through whom God created all things. So Jesus is the firstborn of creation. How superior is Jesus over all creation? Paul elaborates. He's not just superior over the boring stuff that you see, like water and birds and dirt and trees and stars and galaxies and black holes. He's not just supreme and preeminent over all of that boring stuff. It says he is preeminent over all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority. All things Jesus is superior to. So we know Jesus was God and was with God before creation because everything in heaven was created by and for him. All the angels, all the powers, all the authorities, all the stuff we can't see, all the stuff that's invisible to us that we can't even comprehend, all of that was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And verse 17 says that he is before all things. He came before because he always was, and he stands before because he is the first in line. He is the head, the inheritor, the ruler. He's the top of the created chain, and he holds all things together. So the power of Jesus is the power of creation, and the power of Jesus is the power of sustaining creation. Everything hangs together in the power of Jesus because he is preeminent and supreme in all things. And that's who has entered into his creation in order to rescue it. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, the making visible to us the mystery of God, a mystery we could not fully understand until the cross, and the cross gave us a glimpse of that mystery of what God was doing in the Messiah, and then not really fully, fully understood until the resurrection, which is where Paul leads us next. He is preeminent in the church, verses 18 to 20. First, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, making him the head of everything created. Now Paul says Jesus is the head of the body of the church because he is the firstborn from the dead. Easter is a big deal because Jesus went to the cross to atone for our sins, but Easter is only a celebration because Jesus has risen from the dead. He's the firstborn of the dead. And the firstborn of the dead means all of the similar things that firstborn of creation does. He is the first. He's preeminent. He's supreme over the body or the assembly of all that will be likewise resurrected. Now you might pause and think. And you might think, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't the first one that was raised from the dead. He actually raised some people from the dead himself. And there were other resurrections. Wasn't that the whole idea with Lazarus that he was raised from the dead? Well, yes, other people were raised and breathed again and had this life returned to their body, but they all had to die again. You imagine that? You go through death once and then Jesus resurrects you. You're Lazarus, you're in the tomb, you think you've got it all done with, and then you're back again to do it again. (laughs) Thank you, I think. (laughs) Make it quick next time. Um, But yeah, people were resuscitated. People got this life put back into them, but they were not raised as the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn of all those who will inherit new glorified bodies. 
that will be untouched by sin, that will suffer no corruption of the curse, that will not age, that do not grow weary, do not even shed tears unless they're tears of joy. In that sense, they are being recreated. Jesus is supreme over creation, and Jesus is supreme over recreation. And that isn't just an interesting play on words. It's what's actually happening. Jesus is the means through which all things are being made new again. And that's what Easter is about. That's what the resurrection brings into being. This power of recreation. A new body, a firstborn of the new glorified reality that none of us have yet except Jesus. Paul says just by looking at the glorified Jesus, we are being made into his likeness. He says... And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another in 2 Corinthians. John says it this way. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Paul is explaining all of this in more detail in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's walking his Christian friends through the process of resurrection. And yet, he comes to explain to them, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. You see, this is what has taken place at the resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead because he's the firstborn into this new spiritual glorified body. And we are getting carried along just by looking at him, just by gazing upon him. We are getting carried along into that till we eventually will have our glorified body. But it's not just us. Jesus is pulling us into this new glory, and we are then pulling all of creation into this new glory. Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, not only will we be caught up in this glorification of Jesus, in this new creation, all the rest of creation is going to get caught up in our glorification with us. It says in Romans 8, 20 to 21, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's this incredible reality that's taking place. Jesus, firstborn of the dead, receives his glorified body, a body none of us have yet but which we will have, which will never age, which will never deteriorate, which we will have for eternity. And then Paul says that as we are glorified, all of creation is going to get pulled up into our glorification with us. Creation obtains our glory and is remade. And it's interesting because we often think that in the end, Jesus is going to, you know, Jesus is going to remake, you know, new heaven, new earth. He's going to remake creation. And we'll just kind of get caught up in that as Jesus remakes the world. But Paul says it's actually the other way around. Jesus is recreating us and the whole universe is going to get caught up in our recreation and in our glorification. And I think that makes a difference because Christ is the firstborn and we're the secondborn. And then, you know, the whole universe just kind of tags along with us. And it's recreated. 
But how do we become part of that body? How do we become part of that assembly that Christ is preeminent over, that he is the Lord over, that he is the head of the church? He's the head of creation, he's the head of the church, and we want to be part of that assembly. We want to be part of that body. How do we receive that glory? And so Paul moves from creation to the church, and then he moves down in scale to the supremacy of Christ in us, in our salvation. Verse 21 begins, and you. And the ESV is not a great translation, honestly. Uh, I love the ESV in many ways, but it misses the weight of this transition here, I think. The NASB says, yet you. And the NIV might actually be the best, which is hard for me to say, but um, (laughs) the NIV says, but you. But you. But you. It's like an emphatic. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's made peace by the blood of the cross. Good Friday is good. But you, you personally, not just creation, not just the church universal, not just nameless people out there that are part of the assembly of God, but you, you, Paul is saying, you member of this church in Colossae. Paul wants them to see that he's talking about them. This isn't just doctrine. This isn't just theory. This isn't just a poem. This isn't just a hymn that we can get emotional about. Paul says, but you sitting right there in your church in Colossae, you sitting in your seat right here, me. Well, let's just read the text again and get it back in our minds. What is Jesus supreme over in our lives? He says, but you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body, the flesh. By his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says you were not a part of this assembly. One of the things that the hymn and that Paul doesn't touch on here is the fall, right? He says, Jesus was the image of God, and in him all things were created. And then it it doesn't mention the fall because it jumps to the fact that things need to be reconciled. So we know that there was a fall. We know that creation is not the way God intended because the hymn glorifies and magnifies and praises the reality that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself by his death on the cross. So Paul gets to the personal here. He says, you you used to not be part of this assembly. You were not part of the inheritance. You were hostile. You were an alien. You were an outsider. You were not holy, but you were doing evil deeds. That's you. But you personally, if you trust in Jesus and your trust is real and lasting, you have been reconciled by his death. Jesus died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Not just the church, but you. He died for you to present you holy. And that's another clue that this Jesus is an unusual sort of person. It's another clue that Resurrection Sunday is an unusual sort of an event. Just in the way Paul words it there. Usually when we talk about people dying, we stop using verbs about them. You know, we don't say things like, I'm just going to die a little bit later and then I'll go get some milk and bring it back. You know, usually at the dying part, the verbs end, right? But here, Paul, very casually, if it makes total sense to him, says that Jesus reconciled you by dying in order that he might present you before himself. That's unusual, but not unusual for Jesus. 
And Paul knows it's not unusual, and he just says it like it should just make sense. Jesus is like, I need to present you before myself as blameless, and so I will die first in order so that I can reconcile you and accomplish that, and then after I die, I will present you to myself as blameless and holy. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, by resurrection, of course. I'm going to be the firstborn of the dead. I have to die in order to reconcile this sin of yours, in order to atone for the sin of the world. But I'm also supreme over all things. I'm preeminent over all things, supreme and superior over all things, including death. There is no authority. There is no power. There is no angel or demon or anything that I'm not supreme over. And so after I die... I will declare my victory over death, and then I'll take my throne, and I will present you before me blameless because of what I've accomplished in my death and resurrection. And Paul just says it like it's normal. Jesus is going to die, and then he's going to present us blameless. If you trust me, if your hope is in me, if you don't shift your hope onto something else that will fail you, Paul says the body of the church who Jesus died for that will be blameless And those that don't have shifting hopes, that's who they are. And it's a good expression, a good way of phrasing the nature of the gospel, that it is a hope that you don't shift from. Because where else could your hope shift to apart from Jesus? You have Jesus, God, the image of God, who is God, who's come out of his love to die for us on the cross, proving his promise and his power and resurrection. And Paul says You put your hope there and you don't shift your hope, you are part of his assembly. You are part of the glorified body. And where else would you place it? If we put our hope or our trust or our faith, and you can use those words interchangeably, if you put them anywhere else, then it's not on Jesus and it's ineffective. This little snippet that we are given in the Gospel of John is very helpful for us here. There's this point where Jesus is talking to a large crowd that is made up of many people who have been following him. Not just the twelve, but it says many of his disciples. There's probably several hundred people, maybe more, who followed Jesus on a regular basis and called themselves his disciples. They liked his teaching. They were excited by the arrival of the Messiah. They, they wanted to hear what this, this rabbi was teaching And so there's this point in John 6 where he's teaching before the crowds and many of them are his disciples. And they were hoping in him. Their hope was that Jesus would tell them what they wanted to hear. But instead, in John 6, after he had finished teaching some difficult texts and some difficult truths, we're told in John 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, Peter's answer is the right one here. To who else would we go? Where else would we put our hope? Paul says in Colossians, if you trust in him, if your hope is in him, and it's not shifting, And we've talked a lot about shifting hopes in our series on Colossians, right? What do we idolize? What do we put our satisfaction in? What is our desire? What do we put our hope in? And Paul says, those that are of the assembly are those who don't have shifting hopes. Their hope is like Simon Peter's here. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else we could shift our hope to and make it better. I'm going to put my hope in politicians. I'm going to put my hope in 
you know, medicine. I'm going to put my hope in money. I'm going to put my hope in fame. I'm going to, like, where are you going to put your hope other than in Christ Jesus? I don't know where those other people are leaving to to put their hope in those that left Jesus. Maybe they're going back to worship pagan idols. You know, maybe they're hoping enough sacrifice will be enough. Maybe they're just going back to Judaism. You know, maybe they're going back to following the law and, you know, resting on the Sabbath and circumcision and feasts and the right sacrifice. Maybe they're going back to that. But that's not going to save them. They've shifted their hope off of the thing that will save them. That's what Paul's talking about here. Don't move your hope to anything else. Don't shift the body, the assembly, the church, those that are disciples of Jesus, those that will be glorified and caught up and presented blameless before him are those that leave their hope in Jesus and know that there is no other place for it. And there are a lot of people maybe listening here online or who are here today, and you've put your hope and your satisfaction and your joy in a lot of different things. And let me tell you, there are hundreds of people sitting beside you right now who will tell you that thing will let you down. I went through periods in my life putting my hope in this and my hope in that, in that, in that, in that. Ultimately, my hope in myself that somehow I was smart enough to figure it out. And all of those hopes let me down. And everyone who is a believer here today can tell you a story of all the places they put their hope that failed them until they put their hope in Jesus Christ. And Jesus never lets you down. So if your hope is in Jesus Christ, you are identified by having a firm hope, not a shifting hope. And those whose hope does not shift are proven to be his disciples and will be caught up in his glory. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. And for us personally, that means he is the ultimate place to put our hope. He's preeminent in all things, in everything, in every way. Invisible, invisible. Powers, authorities, principalities. He's superior over everything. He's proven he's superior over death. Nothing replaces Jesus. Nothing displaces Jesus. No one has any power over Jesus. He's esteemed. He's exalted. He's above all, for all time, forever, for eternity. He is the sure place of our hope because he's risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this hymn in Colossians where Paul just (laughs) unburdens his heart with the passion that he has for the goodness and the greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. He's so much to us. And I know there's people that are listening to this, people on the outside of the church looking in, and they shake their head and they don't get it. They're like, why do you talk like that? Why is it so important to you? Why do do you speak that way? Why do you feel what you feel? And so, Lord, I just pray by your Holy Spirit that 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 everyday miracle of salvation would take place right now for those people, that they would see, made visible in Jesus, what may be invisible in you that you've given us your son so that the mystery could be revealed. And Father, I pray that we would put Christ on display, that we would not fear, but that we would go and tell. Just like Jesus said to the women at the tomb, don't fear, go and tell. And so, Father, we just esteem your son today. We thank you for what he's done. We make him first in our life, preeminent in everything, And we don't shift. We don't shift. There is nothing else out there that can replace him or displace him. Our hope is in Christ alone. Amen.